that the question, what kind of cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is, I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. Welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca as well. And uh, got a lot of uh, great content on the show. Um, and on the program today, um, I discussed the urban growth machine um, and the politics of real estate development, the role of urban social movements, and a lot more with New York University's urban, uh, uh, one of the most famous urban sociologist, um, Harvey Malach. Um, and we have um, a discussion um, around a number of these issues and talk about the context in New York City and relate it back to Vancouver. So that and plenty of great music ahead um, and a lot more. So this is The City. Stay with us. And thanks for tuning in. Um, as I said, this is The City, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions around a variety of different uh, urban issues. And uh, today on the program, um, talking with Harvey Malach. And uh, when I was in New York City um, about a week and a half ago, um, uh, Professor Malich and I uh, chatted about a number of issues. Um, and he um, initially theorized um, the idea of an urban growth machine and the idea that there are a variety of different interests and actors involved in, in urban growth and development. And they all sometimes, um, in, in many ways, coalesce um, around the idea of growth. Um, so from labor unions um, to uh, real estate developers to uh, municipal politicians, um, this idea that uh, the growth coalition is made up of a number of different actors, and many of them representing different constituencies, but yet can, uh, can unite around the idea of growth because maybe for the labor union it means work. Um, maybe for the real estate developer it means profit. Um, and for municipal politicians, um, often uh, it becomes their role to, um, to kind of um, ease the tension or sometimes not even ease the tension completely. Um, be, be, they're complicit often in, in this growth machine. Um, so it's a really interesting way to think about the city and to think about urban growth um, and the politics of development. Um, and often there are issues of um, smart growth or system sustainability, um, green growth um, embedded within all of this um, uh, lately, uh, certainly the case. And again, how do social movements play into this? How do urban social movements contest the growth machine? Um, and uh, what are those dynamics and what are those tensions and how do they play out? So we're going to explore all this and a lot more um, on the program. 
Uh, so uh, Harvey Mollich is pr- professor of social and cultural analysis um, and professor of sociology um, at the at New York University. And um, actually, he's going to uh, give a little introduction about um, who he is and his research um, and why initially um, he came to think about the city in this way and, and uh, do a lot of this early. A lot of his early research was on uh, the growth machine and growth machine politics. So this is Harvey Mollich, and uh, we're going to be, I'm going to be talking with him in three parts um, with uh, some music breaks in between. So um, uh, th- in this first part, uh, we get a bit of an introduction to the idea of the growth machine. Can you first tell me a little bit about who you are and your research? Yeah, so uh, my name is Harvey Mollich, and I teach at uh, NYU, New York University, and I, my background is that I was trained as a sociologist, but I'm also an urbanist. And uh, at NYU, I'm both a professor of sociology and something called uh, metropolitan studies, which is urban studies and related planning issues and urban geography, that kind of thing. Great. Um, first, I want to talk to you about um, your work on urban growth machines. Okay. And um, certainly has laid... Um, a, a rich foundation for a lot of thinking about property development and the politics around that in mm-hmm. in cities. Um, and it's been a number of years since your book Urban Fortunes was published with John Logan. Mm-hmm. Um, how have well, first of all, what's what's your primary thesis or argument in Urban Fortunes, and how would you explain the urban growth machine? Yeah, so. Um, it began really when I was a graduate student uh, many years ago at the uh, University of Chicago, which is sort of the birthplace of a great deal of uh, urban geography, urban sociology, and that sort of thing. And founded as it was in the really 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, um, and then really be coming into its own in post-war 1950s period, it had a very scientific orientation and uh, it was uh, it involved a search for what were uh, regarded as universal laws that could explain how cities grow and cities develop. Uh, and what what I saw was that um, certain political and economic interests were not being accounted for. So, for example, you would never know from this uh, vein of work that there was such a thing as a real estate industry. Um, that that real estate industry, uh, uh, along with construction companies um, and uh, uh, the people who make cement and uh, all of that, uh, played a role in urban governance and in the outcome of city developments. They are just sort of treated as passive. If they were treated at all, they're mostly just not even treated at all. So what I did was uh, came to think that um, these people are very active. In part, I thought that because of my own family. I grew up in the American East Coast, and, uh, well, there's just a lot of plain old corruption in running governments um, and bribes, and that was also completely invisible um, in these academic fields that I was studying. So I came to sort of um, think about um, th- that there's another side to this, and it involves the fact that I'll call them in general, in a generic way, real estate entrepreneurs and the people they support in political life 
um, have vested interests in how the city uh, evolves one way or the other. And they, um, they invest um, their money, their time, their energy, uh, their charitable work, many, many things in order to have the city um, undergo a future that brings them uh, more substantial returns than they otherwise would get. So that's the point, is that when you look at the map of a city, it's not just roads and uh, highways and railroad tracks. It's also, I, I like to call it, a, a mosaic of interests, of people who have interests in specific parcels of land and also in the land overall. And the ones who, uh, f- for their ov- overall interests, when they want the whole thing to grow so that they can make the most... Um, and they want their city, their metropolitan area to grow compared to a, a different one in Alberta or in Toronto or whatever. Uh, I use the term growth machine to characterize those people and the apparatus they set up to fulfill these goals. You talk about the social construction of, of cities and of markets. And this is something that is in contrast with an orthodox or a neoclassical um, economistic approach to um, urban development or um, uh, you know the city in general how how would you characterize that social construction um, in the city and who are those actors you mentioned a few um, but how what's that interplay like between all of these different actors well one one aspect of the social construction of the city and of the city as an economic functioning unit is that in the United States, certainly, and in many other places in the world, the um, uh, land and property is treated basically as a commodity. Now, this is not necessarily the way the world works in other places, and it isn't just in the Soviet Union where it isn't like that. It isn't like that, for example, in or hasn't been traditionally in Stockholm, where the government owned or controlled the vast majority of, of land. Um, in, in the Italian situation, which I know really quite a little, lot about because I've lived in Italy um, and worked with Italian colleagues, um, the, the system is one in which the parties, the political parties, traditionally controlled land use and decided what would be put where. And so the way that you got a, a handle on that uh, as an actor in the system, uh, gained financial returns for your property, would be to work through the political party. Um, and in the United States, that's not the way it typically is. It doesn't matter who's in political control of a, of a particular jurisdiction. These interests that I refer to, the real estate interests, um, they'll work with whoever is uh, available, whoever they can uh, um, gain uh, as part of their behalf. So anyway, in, in terms of talking about the social construction of the city, the, the, the thing to realize is that uh, there are interests in common that uh, that people have who have financial stakes in the outcome of development, and they structure the future of the city to fit that outcome. So rather than things uh, just being located where they're most efficient to be located, which is the way um, uh, official economics would uh, work it out, um, it's, it's not that way because uh, people... 
uh, as a concrete thing that they decide whether the airport will be on the north side of the city or the south side of the city. How much subsidy will the city provide to create the airport um, in the future or to expand it? All of these decisions happen through people in effect getting together, which is another way of saying organizing things socially. And out of that, constructing what the urban economy will be. Because when you are deciding where infrastructure will be um, and how it will be allocated, you are determining the value of land, one, one kind of land compared to another, and how people will be living. Um, whether they'll need a car or they won't need a car, whether uh, they'll be living near their daughter on the south side of the city or, the, or not their daughter on the north side. Uh, these basic elements of life are determined through this process.
Samantha Cecilia Point to lead Sinat Plaxwa Musqueam. My name is Cecilia Point. I'm a member of the Musqueam First Nation. Uh, the Musqueam Nation is holding vigil at the corner of Southwest Marine and Hudson, and we're protecting our ancestral burial grounds, which have been approved for development. So if you'd like to come down and join us, we will be here 24 hours a day until we receive justice. You can bring food or coffee or bring flowers for our ancestors. If you'd like to donate food, call 604-649-5556. And otherwise, just come down and, and spend some time with us and hold up the sign and show your support. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you. Haichika. With the vast amount of changes happening in the world, it's almost impossible to get a clear picture of what's really going on. We are trapped within the logic of capitalism, leaving us unable to imagine what comes next. The Extra Environmentalist brings the perspectives of people who can see the whole picture and are ready for whatever comes our way. Tune in to The Extra Environmentalist every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m. on CITR 101.9 FM. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you. And this is the city on CITR 101.9 FM and CITR.ca, syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and streaming um, on CJSF at CJSF.ca. And the show's website is thecityfm.org. Again, thecityfm.org if you want to find um, the archive of past podcasts. And there's a lot of uh, great content on there, um, some wonderful interviews, and uh, you can find the link um, from there and again on Twitter, uh, the city underscore FM. So uh, you heard from Grimes during the music break. Uh, Vowels equals space and time. Um, track off of their recent release, Visions. And uh, then before that, um, hearing from Professor Harvey Molich um, at uh, New York University talking about um, the urban growth machine. And now we're going to go into the second part of um, my talk with uh, Harvey Molich, um, talking more about the growth machine um, and the politics of development and um, really uh, seeing development as something that is a privilege and not a right and how cities need to see, view it that way and um, make sure that the benefits um, are something that can be um, taken um, publicly to be uh, redistributed and reinvested um, and not seen purely as development as something that profits um, a small number of people. So, uh, and then also we, we talk a little bit about the future of the left um, in, in the urban context and beyond. My knowledge of New York is limited to the literature on it, but Hi. from your experience and your knowledge and research, is the city of New York really taking a piece of that in the, in the way that it should be? No, it's not. And one reason is is that these kinds of issues that we've been talking about are really not on the agenda. Um, there is a discourse uh, that uh, gentrification is bad because it invades neighborhoods and displaces the working class um, and sanitizes uh, what was otherwise um, uh, charmingly gritty. There's that kind of discussion, but this larger discussion about this thing is generating wealth. Okay, uh, if we make peace with it, let's get a piece of it. That is not taking place. And indeed, um, New York, uh, New York City, uh, routinely grants tax abatements 
including for luxury housing. It's, to me, absolutely scandalous. Um, we provide also um, subsidies to corporations, the great fear being that they'll go to New Jersey, as though New Jersey is, is some kind of, um, you know, uh, Iranian terrorist. I mean, I don't hate New Jersey. Uh, they're human beings. Uh, you know, they need to fix their potholes. Let, <laughs> let, let, let New Jersey take a little of it. So New York City absolutely runs on gigantism. And anything that adds to the numbers is considered ipso facto good, and they will pay to get it. Well, that's it's interesting in conversations with uh, city councilors in Vancouver. The, the logic is that if you um, you know take too much or you know force too many concessions out of developers, they're just not going to want to develop. Right. Um, and it's a, again, it's a matter of degree. Um, but in a place like Vancouver, that's been boomtown for property development for the last, uh, you know, really intensely for the last 15 years. Um, I think you can take a bit more um, without discouraging them or them saying, well, we're going to go to Seattle. Yeah. Or we're going to give up completely. Well, but, but, but yes, but, you, but they're in a way, I would advise the people of Vancouver uh, to entertain the possibility that, that they will go elsewhere. Let, let, that, let them go. If they're going to add to the traffic burdens, um, increase the infrastructural costs, the sewer line, yada, yada, whatever, uh, make life less pleasant, create, um, sh- put, put buildings in shade that would otherwise get some sun, uh, you know, hold back my vegetable garden. I mean, you you can say, well, okay, let them go. That's that's one one response. Um, because otherwise, what is the the end point? Is it just going to infinitely grow? I mean, well, what is what is? I mean, inevitably, there is a, a bust that will happen in Vancouver. The boom will not last forever. We know they don't. Um, right. And at that point, um, in many ways, uh, property development has been has been, with all of its uh, various components, has been the uh, broadly defined industry that really keeps things moving in the city um, in, in a, you know, a, a capitalistic paradigm. What, what is the alternative? Or, or mm-hmm. how, do we, how do we make a convincing argument on the left that there can be something else besides uh, luxury condo development? Well, I, first of all, I don't know that you should. I think you should tax it. Um, and, and now that we're, we're stuck with markets um, and, and the way they've been constructed over the years, uh, artificially or otherwise. Uh, and um, this is not a moment of, uh, of imminent uh, revolution that will eliminate private property. So then what can you do? And, uh, and I think that the exaction process that you spoke of earlier, which Vancouver has been a leader in, um, and and um, and and much of it, a quite intelligent exaction, from what I know about the process, uh, is uh, is good. And just it is a question of just how far you want to go. At one point, for example, the island of Maui, uh, the Hawaiian Islands, mm-hmm. and Maui is the county. Um, uh, they uh, took at least half of uh, of all the value out of out of land. Um, as as a price for the de- as as a, the, the public take on the development process, uh, and that the uh, amount of affordable housing had to be rep- roughly half of all the um, units produced. So um, 
uh, we can go much, much further. And then if you reach the breaking point, then you're at the end. The other, the, but the other important point to get back to our earlier discussion on the social construction of markets, the number of units that you allow determines the price. It isn't that the uh, business people will say, oh, no, I can't, I can't develop profitably um, if that's what you're going to do to me. That's, that their level of profitability is determined by the kind of deal that the market anticipates they're going to be able to get. So if the land is owned for 20 units an acre and you allow 50 if, if the tradition has been to make them put X millions of dollars into parkland and you tell them, well, no, no, you don't have to do that anymore, well, then the value of the land goes up. And then the next developer has to pay that higher price and then comes in with the very same sob story. I can't, I can't develop under I these conditions. Have a density bonus. I have yeah. to have a density bonus. I have to have this. I have to have that. So the, the, the the city planning process, the zoning process, is also an economic process that determines the price of property. And how do we how do we navigate this? Because we can we can see at the federal level um, much of Congress absolutely they're having drinks with Wall Street um, executives and the banking industry and lobbyists. At the local level, um, certainly property developers in the real estate industry um, has close connections to city staff, city politicians, mm-hmm. um, the growth machine as it's um, uh, more broadly defined. How do we, is that always going to be the case where we have these interests um, and sort of their, their tentacles um, within City Hall? It's always going to be the tension. That's that's what it's going to be. Um, again, short of a real transformation, as I spoke about the way properties developed in, say, Stockholm or was, um, it's always going to be the great the great battle. Mm-hmm. And historically, the question has been: Where the, are there two sides in the battle? And so, prior to the last twenty years or so in America, in U.S. cities, uh, there was no battle because the growth machine basically ran everything. Um, and they were invisible. Mm-hmm. They were invisible in social science mm-hmm. and economics. They were invisible because they were uncontested. Do we, do we have a co-opted left? I, I mean, this can be at any scale, but do we... And my example is, in many ways, the language of, of um, ecological concern and sustainability from... Um, very much centrist um, parties, but that argue that they're very much on the left um, is part of their repertoire and part of their rhetoric. Is is that argument and that liberal liberal environmental movement is that been is this part of the problem? I guess in terms mm-hmm. of a left that doesn't have um, really doesn't have the political will to really exact the change that that we need. Well, everything is co-opted. There's nothing that isn't co-opted. Uh, it's just a part of life, uh, you know. That you want to have lunch, you're going, and there's no way to get lunch except to be co-opted. Really, um, uh, you know, the French worker priests are, I think, 
among the least co-opted people and the bums on the streets are among the least co-opted people but most everybody's co-opted and the, even the homeless people who beg for money are co-opted because it's a long story but they're in a kind of relationship with the police of live and let live uh, and so we're all co-opted it's a question of um, how history is evolving and the bargaining power you think you have compared to the bargaining power you actually have. At the national level in the United States, the big debate is Obama. Um, is he completely co-opted because, because of many reasons, but one of them, let's just say Wall Street. Um, and, and, and then for some people, he, he, no, he, he really should have, if, if he'd have used his bully pul- pulpit, if he'd have been a leader, he would have, he would have been able to, in fact, overpower uh, the right wing in Congress um, and the oil companies. Uh, the artists are no problem. They're with him all the way. Uh, and um, for other people uh, who um, are more empathetic with Obama's predicament, and that's the word they would use, uh, the only thing that's kept us from an, you know, even a more fascistic regime uh, would be um, is, is Obama's, uh, I'll use the term, political science. Literally, he he really knows the world, uh, and these people on the left who criticize him don't. And I, I'm I'm entitled to no special opinion on that. Okay. Before I just want to finish up with the the theme of urban development. Um, what do you see coming ahead? Uh, we saw we saw the Occupy movement. We mm-hmm. saw public space becoming that site of struggle that. Um, those like David Harvey talk about the key to that urban revolution and that the revolution must be urban. Um, what do you see? Do we, you know, are we, are we going to see more of the same or, you know, social stratification in the city is only going to increase? Where are we headed and what are those conflicts likely to be? So, um, the, the, y- yes, if there's a revolution, it will be urban. Um, uh, if there's a counter-revolution, it will be urban, too. If there will be a lynching, it will be urban. And it's because everything is urban, and that's where everything is. And it's, uh, you know, in a way, I've lost my own subject of analysis and research because the urban is no longer a, as versus what. Uh, uh, there's nobody left out there. And increasingly, at the world level, there's nobody else but the ones who are urban. So... Um, so yes, the the revolution will be televised, and the revolution will be urban. Uh, that's that's clear to me. After that, the clarity does break down, and um, I don't think, with all due respect to David Harvey, who I've known for many many years, I don't think that uh, anybody really anticipated uh, the Wall Street uh, Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, it happened. Uh, after it happened, uh, many people got very enthused and uh, th- thought it was, yes, inevitable that it happened. And now there need to be this kind of thing everywhere. To me, what is remarkable, and uh, it's sad, uh, is that with all that's happened, with the ripoff, to use an old-fashioned phrase, uh, that is so massive, the resistance to it is so slight. And that so such a large segment of the working class is so reactionary in its political role. Uh, I don't think any of us were intellectually prepared for that. 
Um, and that's made me very, uh, that's given me great humility mm-hmm. and, and uh, therefore unable to answer your question. To borrow from Gramsci, who theorized about cultural hegemony and that the ideas of the ruling elites permeate every institution in society and almost put, you know, they're putting blinders on people because you think that nothing can be different. Um, To me, I feel like, you know, many Americans and Canadians and whoever else will vote and support parties and, and governments that are completely opposed or completely at odds with their very interests so is i guess this will we'll have to wait and see um but you know what is it that that is preventing us from seeing that there are grave injustices uh beats me that's what i was trying to say earlier i think it beats me and i'm surrounded by books by all these people many of whom i know and I don't think that we collectively anticipated this. Okay.
Vancouver Frontrunners' 8th Annual Pride Run and Walk kicks off Pride Week, Saturday, July 28, 2012. This 10-kilometer run, 4-kilometer walk in Stanley Park raises money for local charity out in schools, bringing awareness and fighting bullying and homophobia in primary and secondary schools in Canada. Register as a team or individual for this fabulous event with incredible prizes for top finishers and the largest, fastest, and best-dressed teams. Join MLAs and all of your friends at the largest Pride Run and Walk ever. Support a great cause and have a blast. For more information or to register, visit www.vancouverfrontrunners.org. Queer FM Vancouver Reloaded and CITR 101.9 FM are proud media partners and supporters of the Pride Run and Walk. This is the city on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM and CJSF.ca. Find the city on uh, the web at thecityfm.org, past podcasts and uh, other web content um, as well up there. And uh, I've been talking with um, uh, Professor Harvey Molich, um, a professor of social and cultural analysis and sociology at New York University. And uh, this is um, a discussion um, we had when I was in New York City. And uh, this is um, earlier um, in July. And uh, we're going to go into part three, um, talking about uh, more about um, urban development, but, um, you know, contesting um, the growth machine and the politics um, uh, of of development um, that often exclude, um, you know, working people and uh, lower income people um, and also discussions about sustainability and the language of um, sustainability, smart growth, and green growth as well. So um, this is part three, um, Professor Harvey Malich. How much agency do um, working people have in these processes? And to what extent do social movements or, um, I guess, yeah, to put it more bluntly, to what extent do people not in the real estate um, development industry have in shifting and uh, directing the trajectory of a city's development? Like, like in everything else, it varies, and it varies by um, how much clout you have, how much social um, uh, uh, resources you have, um, and also the historic moment. Um, and the degree to which social movements are mobilized and are uh, a threat and therefore playing a role. So as, as a standing thing, the, uh, this is not big news. The most affluent uh, people living in the most affluent neighborhoods uh, do weigh in and have a consequence that uh, working people or even middle class people don't have. So, for example, in the Los Angeles region, there are no freeways through Beverly Hills, and there were supposed to be, but Beverly Hills stopped that. Um, and that kind of thing is repeated um, all over the country. So that's one thing that's sort of a constant. Um, what's what's not a constant is the um, the historic moments. Uh, and the way that varies and affects the power of working people um, or in the United States minority populations to have a consequence uh, and have an effect. Um, and when there is uh, intense mobilization, um, uh, then their needs um, do get taken into account. And so, uh, again, in the United States, uh, it was common to... Um, run the freeway uh, right through the poorest neighborhoods. The, po- the p- neighborhood poverty almost becomes a root of highway planning. Uh, 
uh, because it was considered a good thing. You can simultaneously remove these cancerous neighborhoods uh, while um, g- getting yourself a highway route. Um, that land also tends to be cheaper than other land. So everything comes together to determine where the route will be. By the way, that's another way of talking about the social organization of the city and, and its economy, in this case, where a highway route will be. Well, when the uh, civil rights movement really got going, and especially in the United States during the time of urban protests, marches, and violence, then city administrations uh, stopped being so free with the uh, red pencil line that would outline the route of a freeway through an impoverished neighborhood. Um, that was a uh, so that was a break in the pattern. Today, the environmental movement, um, to the extent it is powerful and its power uh, rises and falls, uh, but compared to other movements, it has been more the more recent movement of significance. Then that too has effects because people know that uh, middle class people realize that. Uh, that these are environmentally uh, degrading facilities um, and they then can play a role in that political process. You touch on something interesting in coming from Vancouver which um, has a reputation for sustainability and for um, opposing um, the highway building that we saw um, in the you know in the 60s all throughout North America um, and has that long tradition and something that many people are very proud about. Um, But something that we're increasingly seeing is the use of um, like an ecological or sustainability argument, um, which is essentially sidelining issues of social justice in many instances. So you can have transit-oriented developments around a subway stop or around, you know, a, a, a commuter line. Um, but it's not necessarily um, anywhere near the degree to which it needs to be affordable for working um, people, lower-income people, youth, seniors, on and on. Um, so just in, in seeing how this movement has um, sort of been shaped over recent decades in, in a neoliberal context, how, um, how does the environmental movement, does it really contest um, development in the city um, for, for higher income users or is it, um, is it something that is complicit in the growing social stratification of the city? The environmental movement is like everything else subject to these pressures, shapings. Um, one of the best examples is the recycling movements mm-hmm. which are enormously um, popular and really do show, the good news is, how moral people will be. Mm-hmm. That is, for no good reason, really, uh, for no good financial reason, people spend a lot of time separating the bottles from the plastic. And it used to be in Vancouver, you had to separate the green bottles from the brown bottles. and A uh, very tedious process. Uh, and people do it. Uh, which really shows a tremendous amount of um, good feeling um, back, and that backs up action. Um, so that's the uh, the good news. The bad news about recycling is that, um, at least in the United States, um, and uh, the whole potential for recycling amounts to two percent of the waste stream, because the great damage to the environment is produced is happens through the production of goods, not their disposition at the at the last stage. So um, 
that is um, I have a, a PhD student who did her dissertation on this it's a book now with MIT Press called Recycling and Reconsidered and her reconsideration is to point out this aggregate data and to show historically how it is that the big corporations came on board with recycling uh, became uh, corporate sponsors mm-hmm. of environmental organizations uh, and in that way moved the environmental agenda uh, toward uh, recycling at the point of consumption rather than at the point of production. Um, and, of course, that was a much easier sell mm-hmm. for them and everybody's happy. And uh, Okay, so now it comes to uh, um, this... Uh, um, uh, but I've already. What, what did you ask me? Oh, just just the way that um, liberal environmentalism has, in some ways, been complicit, oh, right? In right, you could say a revanchist agenda in this right. in this city. So the analogy to recycling then um, today um, is smart growth, and uh, the idea that we can have a win-win situation, uh, and. Uh, there's no reason not to recycle. I mean, uh, I'm not. Uh, I do recycle. I'm not an enemy of recycling. Um, the the, um, the question with recycling is, what else do you get? And if we and the answer was not too much. And now we can ask that about um, about smart growth. What else do we get? Okay, we're going to get more people piled up at specific spots. But what else do we get? As a uh, for the left, I've always. Um, promoted the idea or pushed the idea that uh, for urban development, um, again, at least in the United States, the best policy is what I call a wall of no. That if you have a wall of no, then that means that you can get some yes. Um, And that if you make development not a right but a privilege, then you can insert whatever um, uh, political and moral priorities uh, that you as a community have for what should be developed. And um, that is, uh, again, in, in, in a neoliberal environment, it, it's not even neoliberal. The U.S. has always been liberal. I, I don't even like the term neoliberal for the U.S. because we, we're never, we've never been anything but. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but because of home rule um, and control over the development process, uh, that's one of the few options that localities have to get something out of the production apparatus, the production process. And so if you say, especially privileged places like Vancouver, where uh, um, prosperity, um, it's not Flint, Michigan, there is prosperity and developers want to be there. So in effect, you can get a tax out of them coming in. Um, And Vancouver already does some of that. Um, It's a question of to what degree and for what purpose. And um, that's a way to bring a real politics um, into the front door of the development process. I guess the question is to what extent? And this is something, absolutely, Vancouver has development cost levies and community amenity contributions for larger developments that um, they require from new developments or redevelopments. Um, but it becomes a question of how much. And right now, um, many ways, like many American cities, we're in the midst of a, of a major crisis in affordable housing. 
and um, the degree of speculation occurring in the city, in the inner city, um, is is really it's far far outpacing people's um, people's incomes. And it's not people in Vancouver don't have exceptional uh, incomes. It's mm -hmm. um, it's very mm -hmm. it's very normal in that sense. So you know it doesn't yeah. doesn't look that different actually than a place like Cleveland, Ohio, in terms right. of median household incomes. But that said. Um, we're looking now, and, and sort of the, the trajectory that we're going in, in some ways, is providing uh, greater supply-side incentives for um, a loose term, a loose, the loose uh, creation of affordable housing, but without actually defining what affordable is. Right. So you're relaxing some of these um, requirements with development cost levies in order to have 100% rental housing constructed. So, and that's being sold as, in itself, rental housing is a public good. Yeah. So, we, we got to be real careful here. Yeah. And um, one of the problems with um, the development process from the city standpoint is that um, people who run cities don't have sharp pencils ordinarily. Um, and so, um, one of the um, uh, uh, problems with affordable housing programs everywhere uh, is the looseness with which they're constructed. So, for example, uh, f affordable for how long? Um, and, uh, well, and as you put it, is w what does affordable mean? Um, in uh, one of the towns that I've spent a lot of my life, which is Santa Barbara, California, the, the political goal there was clear, which was the progressive community just wanted to get housing out of the marketplace, period. Um, and so working with nonprofits as well as um, there, there were liberal left coalitions running the city and at times the county that the city is in, uh, the scheme was to use city and county resources and private resources to just get that stuff out of the private market altogether and forever. Uh, and if you can keep inching that percent up, uh, then you're ahead of the game. Um, and so you can use development levies, um, in, the, in this case, uh, to um, infuse into such a fund to leverage housing that will just not be in, in, the, in the marketplace at all. And I think that's the, the best strategy. Um, it's, it has various flaws. They, they, all, they all do. One um, friend of affordable housing is the Depression. And... Um, the, uh, the, the recession depression has done more to make housing affordable. It's, it's being treated as a, as a crisis in real estate. But one person's crisis is another person's uh, fabulous moment. Um, and housing to purchase becomes much, much more beneficial uh, at a moment like this. And so the depression is really a, a, housing, a housing break for people. And that was Professor Harvey Mollich, Professor of Cultural um, uh, Studies and Analysis at New York University and also Professor of Sociology, a joint appoint appointment. And I was talking with him in New York City earlier this month in July. Um, and that concludes uh, the city um, for this week. And uh, you've either been tuning in on CITR 101.9 FM or uh, tuning in on CJSF 90.1 FM. And you can find The City on the web at thecityfm.org, on Twitter, the city underscore FM, um, and also on Facebook as well. So uh, check um, out past podcasts, and uh, this show will be available as a full podcast in case you missed a portion of it live on radio. 
And um, again, back next week with more uh, critical urban discussions. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, we're going to go out with a track from uh, Montreal's Parlor and um, be back next week. Trying hard not to look good to cry It was only